You're listening to Deal Talk with 7MA, providing invaluable insight into investment banking and the M&A space through honest conversations with industry thought leaders, business pioneers, and innovators. We'll pull back the curtain and give you the inside scoop on trends in our targeted industries and provide you the tools to better position your company in today's market. Welcome back to another episode of Deal Talk with 7MA. The following episode was originally recorded as part of our Access 2020 event and features one of our partners, Leroy Davis, leading a fireside chat with Glenn Youngkin, former co-CEO of the Carlisle Group. We're very pleased to have Glenn Youngkin, former co-CEO of the Carlisle Group. So Glenn, thanks for joining. You're in the midst, I won't say you've had, you're in the midst of an amazing career. There's much to discuss, and I've known you for, I did count it, and I think it's over 35 years, which dates us both, and that's a good long while, no matter how you cut it. And we've been talking about doing this for a while, and I'm looking forward to it. And I think today, Glenn, what I'd like to do, I'd love to touch on your career, how you got to where you are, touch on that a little bit, some of the things that have informed your decision-making along the way during the, the, the course of your career. Also, the evolving private equity interest in asset light sectors. Those are sectors that are near and dear to us, as Andy mentioned at the beginning. We've been trafficking in those sorts of companies before it was as fashionable as it is today. And we definitely noticed an uptick from private equity groups in terms of those interest in those types of businesses. Also, Glenn, everyone wants to hear your perspectives on this, on the current economic climate. So I, I would definitely like to touch on that. I'm also personally very interested in the initiative that you co-founded with your wife, Suzanne, the Virginia Ready Initiative, which is largely about equipping Virginia employees for today's rapidly changing. It already was rapidly changing before COVID. Now it's amazing the pace of change that we're going through. And and Virginia Ready is really about equipping people for working in in today's economic climate. And then lastly, we received a whole bunch of questions for you, Glenn, from participants from the conference. So we'll follow up with that. And also, Glenn, I did do some research on some of your public interviews. And I actually have a question which I'll come back to at the end of this that's really a follow-up based on a discussion that that you had with your good friend, Willie Walker, CEO at Walker Dunlop. We'll save that to the end. I'll come back to that later. So Glenn, maybe what I can do is I'll take a stab at at introducing you. And as I do that, I'll ask you some questions on on your background. Perfect. Leroy, I think that sounds great. And I'd first just to thank everybody at uh, Seven Mile Advisors for having me. I'm wildly impressed with the way your firm not only has grown, but has really stuck to its knitting. And so I just appreciate being part of uh, this esteemed group. So thanks. Glenn, the way we think about the sticking to your knitting thing is it's a lot like when you, you have a tie and it comes in and out of season, it's fashionable and unfashionable. We've just been wearing the same tie for, and it's just coming back into season. So we're, we're happy to see it. That's great. Leroy, I did notice that in the pictures on the website, some of you have stuck with those ties a bit too long. This is true. <laughs> So Glenn, like me, you're a Virginia native. Your mom, Ellis, was, I believe, a, a nurse and a nurse practitioner, like a teaching nurse. Yes. Wrote a couple books, right? She had. Your dad, I think, was something of a finance and accounting person. I think he worked with McCormick and a few other notable companies along the way. And he also was a standout basketball player at Duke. 
So Glenn, in terms of your dad, what role did your dad play in the 1960 ACC basketball tournament? It's <laughs> a great place to start, Leroy, which is really helpful because I was a little worried you were going to say you did some research on my college stats in basketball, which are hard to find. But what's great about where I grew up and the way I grew up, and same with you, Leroy, is we grew up with parents that were engaged in our lives and parents that were great role models. And and my dad was a great role model. So was my mom. My dad was a really good basketball player at Duke. They won their first ACC tournament in 1960. And he was really good. And one of the great things that I had a chance to do last year was really spend a bunch of time talking to a lot of people about really how uh, good he was. So if we go to the Duke website today, you'll still find Carol Yunkin in the top 10 in lots of categories. And it's always been fun to have that as part of our family legacy. Yeah, in fact, I think he dropped 30 points on the Tar Heels for he Duke's first ever ACC tournament uh, championship. He did it, but this is a, this is, you're a North Carolina firm, so I didn't really want to start there. Duke still counts as North Carolina. Okay. So, Glenn, you attended Rice University where you're a mechanical engineer, and you also played basketball at Rice, and you left Rice and got your MBA from Harvard Business School where you're a Baker Scholar. And I think after you left Harvard, I believe you went to CS First Boston, correct? Or did you go directly to McKinsey? I went to McKinsey straight out of business school. I had worked at, I had worked at First Boston before business school. Excellent. And then you joined the Carlisle Group during its form, what, I, what I call a formative years yeah. at the end of 94, beginning of 95, something like that? Yeah, it was in 1995. And it was one of the great invitations of a lifetime when our three founders, David Rubenstein, Bill Conway, and Dan Yellow, at a time when Carlisle really was about 25 or 30 people and still really trying to formulate its long-term strategy, but was really off to a great start. And they invited me to join. And what an invitation it was to be part of Carlisle over the last 25 years as the firm has grown and expanded and provided opportunities for folks like me to just have just a great fun in my career. So Glenn, when I was reading through your bio, and I was going to describe, try to describe all the things that you have done at Carlisle in different roles, I, I gave up. And so I'll, I'll push this back to you. What are the different roles that you played at Carlisle? One of the great things about being part of a growing, expanding firm like Carlisle has been over the last 33 years since it was founded, but the 25 that I was there, was that the firm was constantly expanding both in geographies and in asset classes. And that just created all kinds of just career opportunities for people that were willing to take some risk. And so I started out in our uh, U.S. buyout activities, and then I had a chance to go run our London office for six years and be part of our Europe buyout activities and, and have parts of the world report to me that I'd never been to in the Middle East and Russia and other spots. And then I came back and ran our industrial activities for a number of years. And then about 12 years ago in 2008, right before the great financial crisis struck us all, I was invited into senior management and had a chance to be our chief operating officer and our president, and then had a chance for a number of years to co-lead the firm with my partner, Q Sung Lee. So I have to pinch myself at times, Leroy, because I had an absolute ball every day and found myself challenged in new ways in a growing, exciting firm. So it, it was just an extraordinary uh, opportunity for me. And last I checked, Carlisle had 
or has roughly 220 million AUM, roughly 1,800 employees in 20 countries. That's quite a journey from 1995 to today. Yeah, I just want to make sure, Leroy, it's 220 billion. 220 billion. Yeah. 220 billion. And then, as I mentioned earlier, I'm certain you're involved in many initiatives, but one of the one that really stuck out to me is this whole Virginia Ready thing that you founded with your wife, Suzanne. So I, I look forward to touching on that. So in terms of your beginnings, Glenn, when you were growing up in Virginia Beach, Virginia, what made you decide that you wanted to be co-CEO of one of the world's largest private capital firms? It wasn't really on my radar screen at all. I didn't know anything about it. And I really wanted to be an engineer. In fact, I went to college with this ridiculous ambition to be in the space program. And I guess no one really told me that when you're six foot six and weigh 220 pounds, they're not going to let you into a rocket ship. But that's one of the primary reasons I wanted to go to Rice in Houston. But of course, today, things are really different. And one of the things I'm so inspired by is the just deep understanding of our financial system and how investment opportunities work and capitalism and that exists today in, in high school students around the country. And I do, I do find myself very encouraged by the fact that when we look back 35 years ago and you and I were growing up, really worried about whether we were going to win our basketball game that weekend or not. There's a lot of kids across our country today who are really aspiring to be in these industries. And that's great. And so I just think social media and news and every way that folks learn today has really enabled folks to have a much better awareness of what's going on in the world of investments and finance today. And Glenn, as I mentioned in the intro, if you look on our website from 10 years ago, you'll see us largely, I don't know the percentage, 80 or 90% of our deals were sales to strategic companies, meaning they were already publicly traded businesses and the Accentures of the world. And if you look on our website now, over the past several years, you'll see that mix. I don't know the exact mix, but at 50% or so are sales to private equity groups or the portfolio companies of private equity groups. And that's been a, a significant transition in our business. And I think it says something about the nature of private equity investors and public companies and their acquisition strategies, et cetera. As an early practitioner of the LBO model, which I, bl I believe you were, how is private equity adapting to finance these, what I'll call asset light companies or predominantly IP rich or services rich companies with very little that you could lever up against in the classic sense from a debt perspective? How is private equity evolving in that regard? I think that the shift that you identify, Leroy, is square in the middle of the bullseye of one of the biggest evolutions in private capital over the course of the last really 10 years. And that is the comfort of private equity firms investing in predominantly technology-driven industries, whether that's software or healthcare or financial services, et cetera, where technology really is the underlying distinguishing characteristic of a business. And that is a big shift. And so what are the three or four reasons why? First, today, one of the hardest things to find in an investment is growth. And that's where the growth is. And therefore, if you're an investment firm and you're not equipped to invest in, in those kinds of businesses, then your ability to have outstanding returns is going to be compromised. And so you, 
got to go where the opportunities are first and foremost. Second of all, the private capital industry has learned uh, how to add value in a way today to those kinds of businesses that really it wasn't so equipped to do 10 years ago. And that is all around the kinds of support that we can potentially provide to businesses ranging from how do we help people, how do we help these kinds of businesses expand into new markets? How do we help, how do we help technology or healthcare businesses absolutely stay abreast of latest technology trends? How do we actually create an ecosystem within our own large portfolio where businesses can actually do business with one another? How, in fact, do we bring management skills and capabilities from our platform that hopefully can help the portfolio companies hopefully have a much better perspective of what's going on around them than they may have on their own teams? And that is in addition to the, all the things that we, of course, do normally, which is how do we help? How do we help with ESG initiatives? How do we help with government affairs? How do we help with capital markets thoughts? And so all of a sudden, this idea that all those kind, that kind of investing is restricted to businesses that have hard assets has shifted materially. And it really is about growth and cash flow and the ability to understand the sustainability of these kinds of businesses. It has been a fundamental shift, but I will tell you today, the best private equity portfolios have been those that have in fact fully equipped themselves to have a real distinctive advantage in the world of technology, healthcare, software, fintech, et cetera. Um, it's been a big part of portfolio performance over the last five years. Yeah, Glenn, you mentioned ESG initiatives, and I want to come, I w- I want to come back to that in a bit. So many of the companies that are in attendance at, at our access conference are either in a sale process or contemplating entering into one at some point. What advice would you have for them with respect to management meetings? So if you think about a sort of a classic process, at some point you wind up with the management presentation to investors and they're talking about the history and the growth of the business and et cetera. As a private equity investor, when you would show up at those meetings, what were some of the basic heuristics that you would evaluate the management team on at those meetings? My first very simple comment is build a good business. I think at the end of the day, if a, an investor actually is looking at a management team and evaluating their company, it just is a lot more fun when it's a good business. <laughs> and it's a lot more challenging if the business is either running into, he- into uh, headwinds or candidly just isn't that great a business model. Easy, blinding glimpse of the obvious is just do everything you can to build you know, robust business models. But then specifically, we always look for businesses that have a handful of characteristics. One, quality of leadership. And quality of leadership is something that's kind of hard to list out in an empirical formula, but it's all things we know. So if you build good teams, do you have good processes? Do you actually uh, make decisions? Are you adaptable? And being able to demonstrate that to, a, to an investor group is really important. So quality management matters. And let me just highlight one oftentimes misunderstood concept. It isn't the strength of the personality of the CEO. It's actually the breadth and depth of the team. And oftentimes, you know, a domineering personality who runs a business may in fact be a critical part of the success of that business. But in fact, oftentimes investors may view that as a risk factor. Uh, if there's not a great team that's been built that actually 
yes, incorporates the strengths of a founder slash leader, but also recognizes that it's more than one person. So quality of leadership, big point. Second point is the business's dynamic and sustainable nature. Is there, Warren Buffett calls it a moat. Is there a moat around the business in some form or fashion, or it could be, or could it be easily disrupted or could it be easily commoditized? I think the, the third thing we often see are, are the businesses ready. So have in fact, you've done the work to actually prepare a business for a outside investor. And that's really an important aspect that oftentimes is overlooked and where companies may have a good business model, but they really don't have their ducks in a row from a finance standpoint, a system standpoint, a legal standpoint in order to take in an outside investor. And then finally, it's just culture. And oftentimes it's, it's easily stated, but misunderstood. And I will tell you that when you spend not just one day, but six weeks with a set of outside investors to decide or if they're going to invest or you're going to accept them into your business, the quality of the culture of both organizations really matters and whether there's a good match. And so really understanding your culture and how it works and what kind of investor you might want to bring in, we always look for a match. And every private equity firm has its own general culture and the kinds of businesses, they like, the kinds of organizations they like to work with. And we always look for a match. And some other private equity firms would look for different ones. So I think that's just a, a short list, but of course, there's a longer list, which firms always need to go through with their counsel and advisors. Yeah. And Glenn, one of the things that you mentioned is near and dear to our heart, which is this overpowering CEO idea where you just have one person sort of, you know, perhaps dominating the direction of the company. And I would say in these asset light businesses, which are, you know, largely people-driven businesses, that we find that issue to be even more acute. And to put a point on that, when we're running a process with people, there's always this balance of, okay, at what point do we bring more people into this to participate in these investor meetings? Because on the one hand, yeah, you want to demonstrate the capabilities and the strength of, of the management team for all the reasons you mentioned. On the other side of the equation, these things can be distracting. So you don't want to get too many people involved because, you, as you said, you got to have a good business. And the more people you bring into this, it can be a distraction. So we don't find there's a simple magic bullet answer to that question other than it is a question. So as you're embarking down these paths, we try to work with the clients on when, you know, what is the right timing given all of those considerations. Glenn, back to your ESG reference. In reading about Carlisle, it certainly seems to have been a very important initiative. It feels like you were, you know, instrumental along with, I'm certain, a lot of other people at Carlisle in terms of developing that and implementing it, et cetera. And I think it's a topic that a lot of companies are, are dealing with. I think people understand its importance and are figuring out how to implement it successfully. What lessons could you share based on what you went through at Carlisle with respect to ESG initiatives? Leroy, I guess I first want to say, what I think when I stepped down from Carlisle a few months ago, when I look back over a 25-year career, there's lots of things that I'm really proud of. The, the progress that Carlisle made on the ESG front is absolutely one of them. And I really am thankful to what is an extraordinary team of folks that have come together at Carlisle to, in fact, lead that, including my partner, Q, who's just got a great vision for this. And I think there are two areas that we decided we're no longer going to be sector-specific kinds of 
or focused areas, they were going to be ubiquitous across our entire portfolio. And that was the fact that every deal is a tech deal. There's hardly a company today that does not have a meaningful technology opportunity or risk exposure associated with it. So all of a sudden, instead of having a technology team, we actually recognize that every deal is a tech deal. And the second is on the ESG front. And we, instead of having a ESG fund where we put all of our ESG oriented efforts into a fund, every single investment that Carlisle makes across the firm has a meaningful ESG component. And therefore, we incorporated both technology risk and opportunity and ESG opportunities and risks into not just our diligence, but then the business plans that are put together that the management teams are going to work to pursue. And we've recognized, I think, collectively as an industry that, in fact, winning on the ESG front is a lot more than just a good thing to do. It's really good business. It's smart business. Yeah. And I think for people that are concerned that these types of initiatives could possibly jeopardize returns somehow, or if there's some trade-off between these types of initiatives and returns, they, they need only to check Carlisle's historic returns to, to see if you can have if you can have it all. And I think it's amazing that you were able to do that. So I think your insight, your insights there are, are really relevant to a lot of companies today. I'm glad you shared that. And pulling forward to today, thinking about the pandemic and its after effects, its costs in terms of human life have been enormous. Its economic impact has been almost immeasurable. Through all of that, there does seem, from our lens at, at Seven Mile, with, with the companies that we deal with, which tend to be tech-enabled services, businesses, innovative healthcare, e-commerce, things of that nature, there really does seem to be an opportunity that is emanating from all this that, that I do think juxtaposes a little bit with your Virginia Ready initiative in that it involves reskilling, reskilling people. We do see a major dislocation between tech, labor supply, and demand. Major dislocation. And meaning demand far exceeds supply. For example, I, I think Andy referenced an e-commerce deal we did recently. We have another one that we're hopefully about to announce soon. And during the course of that project, which I was involved in, our client, we were on the sell side, literally could not deliver. And this is during the heart of the pandemic. Literally could not deliver on work fast enough because they couldn't hire people fast enough. They couldn't find skilled technology individuals to meet demands of customers. And this was during a pandemic. And now part of that was due to some of the, the visa laws, but setting aside what one thinks about that, the fact is that they could not find resources, whether they be in the US or anywhere else. And I know that your Virginia Ready initiative is addressing that in part. What do you make of this dynamic? And what are you seeing with respect to your Virginia Ready initiative on these topics? I do think, Leroy, that your question actually has two big components to it. First of all, it's if we back up just 10 months and if we went around and spoke to all of, all of your clients and asked them what their biggest concern was going to be going forward, recognizing no one knew a pandemic was coming, then talent pipeline and access to talent was right at the top of the list. And we can see that particularly go back at that time, and I, the data in Virginia is particularly stark. The unemployment rate in Virginia just 10 months ago was 
and I'll repeat that, 2.6% unemployment in Virginia just 10 months ago. And so this idea of talent pipeline, talent development, and competition for talent, but also putting your employee or putting your business in a place where there's a pipeline is really an important strategic decision that all companies are making. That's 10 months ago. So let's fast forward. And of course, what's happened over the course of the pandemic, in addition just to a horrific health dilemma that has affected everyone, is that things that were developing at a predetermined pace have only accelerated. There's a great research piece that the Carlisle Lead Director of Research published talking about the future is now. And everybody knows that the acceleration of video capability and data analytics and the speed at which we can analyze things and the pace of development in machine learning and what I might call AI, although we'll not talk about the distinction between machine learning and AI, have so fundamentally accelerated that businesses today have to adapt the technology side of their offering, their moat we were talking about before, at at an advanced rapid weight, otherwise they're gonna be disintermediated. And all that has done is taken that problem that everybody saw, a strategic challenge we saw 10 months ago, and again, accelerated it and made it even more of a challenge because things are moving faster. And yet the supply of technical talent hasn't changed a bit. Now, let's couple that with one of the real observations of today, which is we have record unemployment. And the reason why we have record unemployment is directly related to the contraction in a huge part of the economy that has been impacted by travel and hospitality and the restaurant industry, et cetera. But oh, by the way, is also beginning to show itself in lots of other industries as businesses clearly are making decisions about the size of their long-term payroll. And so we've seen furloughs and terminations, and I do think that's not going to be, it's actually going to continue as a result of decisions that a lot of companies are making as they just recognize they need fewer employees in this environment than they thought they needed or work, the work structure has changed. So all of a sudden we have record unemployment and yet we still have this supply demand gap that you referenced, Leroy. So how do we actually bridge that? The way to bridge it is retraining. It has to be retraining and the retraining responsibility historically has been one of these hot potatoes that's being kicked back and forth between companies who recognize it and many of the big companies today have pretty advanced talent development or workforce development programs. But medium and small companies particularly, which make up the lion's share of our economy, really oftentimes don't have the resources and therefore look someplace else like governments or academic institutions in order to take on that responsibility or the economic development partnerships in various states. And so what my wife and I saw happening in April was, in fact, this massive unemployment. And a big question was, how do we, in fact, not have a jobs program, but in fact, incentivize targeted retraining for people to get into high growth in demand jobs? And so we just went through with the McKinsey team and spoke to the 35 largest employers in Virginia and found that across computer cyber and other tech applications, the medical industry and manufacturing, and really it's advanced manufacturing, this gap exists. Tens of thousands of jobs sit open that could be filled by folks that had reasonably short-term training. 
And then we found the community colleges offer this training. And they're six to 12 week training programs that at least give everyone the core skills to get started. And once they get started and get in the company environment, then companies can pick up their training and help them get another credential and move them along. And so this is what Virginia Ready is all about, which is providing an incentive. We actually pay every student a $1,000 credential achievement award if they actually are able to earn a credential in one of our 30 targeted credentialing programs run by the community colleges. Again, things like uh, a cloud technician or a cyber technician or a network technician or in the healthcare world, medical assistants, coding specialists, and in the manufacturing world, welders and HVAC technicians, marine repair specialists, et cetera. And so that whole collection of opportunities, there's open jobs tomorrow. And so the state actually has a program that will pay for two thirds of that training. And with our $1,000 credential achievement award, people can pay the rest of their tuition. And so that's the whole goal. We partnered with businesses to help us understand where the shortages were and where expected to be. And then we work with the community colleges to make sure that the programs, in fact, are adapted real time so that students that pop out of those credentialing programs can get these jobs. There's nothing earth shattering about this other than it's pretty basic supply demand recognition. And on top of that, we got everybody to pull on the oar at the same time. And so that's Virginia Ready. I do think that talent pipeline development is gonna be one, gonna continue to be one of the most strategically challenging things for businesses on a go forward basis because we just do not manufacture enough talent to fill all the job uh, opportunities and therefore people are stuck stealing it from each other. And that's a great opportunity for the next generation workforce. We just have to get them ready for it. Yeah. And Glenn, one of the things I find impressive about the Virginia Ready Initiative is that you didn't recreate the wheel, so to speak. Really, it, it seems that you just connected resources that were there. You're just helping to coordinate them, et cetera. And one of the things that I've just observed in watching your career and and so forth is that th- that's been a skill of yours to just bring people together and make things happen. I don't think you, I don't think this was a greenfield build of some initiative. Rather, you saw different resources that were out there. You made some connections and utilize your network and kind of off we go in a very quick hit, practical, solution oriented kind of way. So hats off to what to what you're doing there. Excellent, right. I have to say the other thing that we always try to do is set ambitious targets and then figure out how we meet them. And so as opposed to a bottoms up, what can we do? We started with the question, what do we aspire to do? And so we really do hope to retrain 15,000 people over the course of the next two years. And we've been up, we've been up accepting students into the program for 60 days now. And we've got 500-ish students in the program. We've got thousands of people making their way from website to give me more information to enrollment. And we're adding new companies all the time. So uh, as partners to hire these folks, I do think that I appreciate your kind comments, but I also think the last thing we did very well at Virginia Ready was recognizing going back to what makes a great private equity investment is great management. And early on, just a killer, just awesome CEO put her hand up to, to run Virginia Ready. It's a woman named Karen Merrick longtime tech entrepreneur. She and her husband founded and ran a business called Web Methods, which was extraordinarily successful. She's started another tech company and sat on many boards. And I think she was really felt compelled by this, this opportunity and this need as well. And 
just to reiterate, great investments mean you have great management, and uh, we're just thrilled to have her play the role of CEO at Virginia Ready. Okay, awesome. Let's hop over to macro econ. So here we are in this crazy economic environment. And one of the things that I would love your opinion on is prior to COVID, most people were waiting for the next recession. Everyone was looking at the clock and like, hey, wait, I think these, hap- these things happen every X number of years. Feels like we're overdue. When's it going to happen? And everyone was in this business of guessing. Is it one year, two year, three year? And it seemed like the anxiety of just that topic pre-COVID was growing every day. And now here we are. And now a lot of the discussion is, okay, is this a U? Is it a V? Are there fits and stops and starts? And how do we get out of here? And how, how long is the trough? And there's much debate about that. And the more time that passes, the more the evidence is on where that will likely turn out. Although it's certainly, it's for sure a huge unknown. But what I'm interested in is those pre-COVID recessionary fears. What did this pandemic, what did that do to that? Or are those pre COVID recessionary fears, are they, should we still be worried about those same concerns? Or did this massive injection, this monetary policy, did it obviate all of those concerns? And now we're just starting from a blank slate and we're moving forward. So what are your comments on that? First is a little bit of my own philosophical perspective, which is really rested in the fact that recessions or economic dips are generally caused by confidence waning as opposed to economic expansions dying of old age. And what happens, of course, in an extended economic expansion is the conversation starts, well, when's this going to turn? When's this going to turn? It's got to turn. And I actually think those sometimes are self-fulfilling prophecies, as opposed to any, any hard economic change that causes a recession. And in the case of you know, backing up 10 months, there really weren't materially challenging things in the economic footprint other than everybody was just waiting. And it was interesting to go through planning processes and talk to companies around the country and the world because management teams were starting to actually pull in a bit just in anticipation something might happen. And I don't want to be, I don't want to be that CEO who actually ignored all those signs. And in fact, when you go back and look at the 10Ks and 10Qs that were published in 2019 and of course into the beginning of 2020, there was all of this kind of new language that made it into press releases just, and it was really almost, I'm gonna use the word fear oriented as opposed to substance oriented. So that was the environment back in January of, of 2020, just a short 10 months ago. I have to say, I think the pandemic wiped all that clean. I really do. I think that kind of perspective feels like it was 10 years ago, not 10 months ago. And today we find ourselves in a very different circumstance, which is a economic outlook, which is predicated again on confidence. And that confidence is no longer driven by a business environment. It's driven by stimulus vaccines, therapies, positivity rates, government reactions, etc. And I just think that we've got so many completely different variables that are beginning to impact the planning horizon and people's confidence in that planning horizon that we just have to keep in consideration the fact that we will get on the other side of this. It will be different. We have some permanent changes to 
our business environment that have been accelerated and they've just, we're not gonna take Zoom and put it in a drawer and never use it again. <laughs> it is here for good. And that's gonna change the way we do things. It's gonna change medicine. It's gonna change financial services completely. It's gonna change the way we call on clients, all changes. So with that in mind, Leroy, I do think we have a different kind of economic risk going forward, which is how do we instill confidence in all the folks on this phone and, and their peers around the country that in fact, brighter days are ahead and therefore I should plan for them. I should plan for business expansion. I should plan to hire. I should plan for revenue growth. I should plan for free flowing capital in order to grow my business. The government has taken on that role in a big way because of the discussions around fiscal stimulus and the disclosures around when is a vaccine coming. And I guess I would just encourage everybody to, to recognize that it is going to be bumpy. <laughs> There's going to be ups and downs. There's going to be Boston today is putting all schools back into remote learning after having in-person learning because of because some health data. It's going to go up and down. But with that said, the long-term viability of our economy is just extraordinary. And therefore, we have to think about how to be longer-term oriented in our planning and not be too dissuaded about short-term issues because we'll eventually get through this. And particularly the folks in, in your ecosystem at Seven Mile Advisors, you have the best business models in the world. And I would just encourage everybody to have a dose of optimism and not let the pessimism creep into your forward planning. Should inflation be a concern? I don't think so. I think inflation there's so many factors that go into drive inflation. Interest rates is really, I think, the hidden factor in inflation. And interest rates are low. They're going to stay low. And oh, by the way, I remind everybody that the determinant of our interest rates is a lot more than what just our central bank does, but it's what central banks around the world do. And there is a universal movement by central banks to keep rates low and to use quantitative easing aggressively in order to try to stimulate economies and to provide some sustenance. This is not just a stimulus bill, it's a sustaining bill. And so this will keep rates low for the foreseeable future. Glenn, we've got a few minutes left. So I'm going to I'm gonna read through some of the questions that we got from the audience. And I'm, I'm going to pick ones that we haven't already talked about. We only have a few minutes, so maybe we'll do this lightning round style. Okay. Advice to graduating high school and college students. How can they best navigate this current job market? Three thoughts. First, do not try to get it all done in one day. Don't be in a hurry. Second of all, expand your capabilities to include some technology. You must have some technology capabilities. And that's just critical. And this isn't to Leroy, it's not to pick on your liberal arts education at uh, Hammond Sydney, but I do think today you must have some technological capability in order to even function in the modern workplace. And then finally, work for good people. Go work for good people in your first job. And again, going back to the do loop, don't be in a hurry. I, I see so many young folks job hop. And I do think that the inspiration to job hop is driven by a lot of kind of unhealthy factors. Find a good place to work and make an investment for a number of years in, in that job. Infrastructure. The big omnibus infrastructure bill seems to have eluded us. What is the most practical way for us to upgrade our infrastructure in the near term? And 
What will we see when it's underway? What are the big milestones that we'll see along the way? To What are the first big wins that we think we'll see there? Yeah, infrastructure continues to just be a really hard nut to crack from a policy standpoint. And yet we all know that infrastructure in the United States continues to get a D rating and, and it's not improving relative to the world. So how to get at that? I think it's just more of everything in order to get to it. I would not bank on government-funded infrastructure initiative to be the panacea. And therefore, comprehensive infrastructure investment is going to require private companies to take a lead, like we're seeing right now with satellite internet. And we're seeing a number of businesses really drive on their own investment to create a real almost disruptive move in how internet can be accessed all over the world but particularly in rural areas. I think second of all, public-private partnerships are going to have to be part of the solution set. They're hard. A lot of people worry about incentives, et cetera. These can be done. Australia has done jillions of these. So has the UK and Europe. This can happen. Private capital is particularly debt capital is virtually free today. We've got to find a way to liberate that capital and bring it into our infrastructure needs. It's more of everything, Leroy, but we're going to have to get comfortable with the fact that if we're constantly relying on the cavalry coming in from the federal government to fix all of our infrastructure needs, we're going to continue to be disappointed and we're going to continue to fall behind. Glenn, we're almost out of time. So I mentioned I wanted to come back to a topic that your good friend Willie Walker raised from Walker and Dunlap. He brought up what I'll characterize as the flip of the coin, sort of 50-50 nature of your free throw. Uh, shooting percentage at, at Rice, which I think is a fair point, but I do want to set the record straight a little bit, and I'll do that in the form of a question. What do you share in common with the following people? Alan Iverson, Moses Malone, Dan Vanderwood, and Garth Forsyth. That group, not everybody will know those last two. First two, most folks would know. That group were all pretty high-scoring high school basketball players. Two of them went on to have noteworthy post-high school careers, and three of them did not. I'll put some specificity around that for you, Glenn. Those are the top five all-time Virginia State high school basketball season, single-season scoring record holders, of which you are one. So I just wanted to round out the stats on your basketball legacy. But Glenn, in in closing, it's an honor to do this with you, and, and thank you for participating. I don't know what's what's next for you. But what I do know for certain is that, and I've experienced this firsthand, is that for sure you make the people around you better and you leave a pretty wide swath of goodwill. So I'm certain you'll continue to do that. And with whatever you do next, I know that the people around you will benefit in a really meaningful way. So I look forward to watching. So thank you very much. Leroy, thank you. Thank you for those kind words. And thanks to you and all of your partners at at Seven Mile for having me. I I continue to be incredibly impressed by what you all have built, the quality of what you do, and really your ability to grow and yet stick to your knitting, as I said earlier. It's just uh, really fun. I remember when you first became a partner, I guess, Leroy, it's 12, 13, 14 years ago now. And to watch Seven Mile grow and expand over those years has been great. So thank you for having me, and I deeply appreciate the chance to be involved in your conference. Thank you. See you soon. Okay. Thanks a bunch, everybody. Have a great day. 
Thank you for joining us on this episode of Deal Talk with 7MA. You'll find more information and resources based on today's discussion exclusively on our website. If you're looking to dive deeper into today's topics, head to 7mileadvisors.com to speak to one of our bankers today. That's the number 7, M-I-L-E-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S.com. 7M Securities does not make any investment recommendation for any company or security that was discussed, nor does the firm offer any tax advice. Consult your tax advisor for any tax matter that might apply to you or your business. 